you guys have Bibles, uh, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. You will find that on page 995 uh, of the black hardcover Bible that's under your seat. I was forever banned from doing kids' sermons, by the way, because I brought sand in last time. So you'll be seeing Pastor John or someone else doing, uh, doing the kids' sermons from here on out, which is fantastic. Um, we also now know what he thinks about our, our bread on Sunday mornings. So it's gluten-free. So. <laughs> Actually, this is some of the best gluten-free bread I've ever had in my life. So. Well, we are in uh, 2 Timothy 2. Uh, if you remember from last week, uh, this letter is the Apostle Paul's farewell discourse. So he's sitting in prison in Rome, and he's writing the last letter that we have recorded for us from Paul in our Bibles, and he's writing that to Timothy, uh, his child in the faith, his dear son in the faith. And in chapter 2, in part to pass on his legacy, and in part to differentiate between faithful and false teaching, Paul paints this this portrait of gospel-shaped ministry. And some of what he writes here in this chapter, it applies especially to those who lead and to those who teach in the church. But we need to start with a very fundamental truth this morning. Who is it that does the work of ministry? Who is it that does the work of the ministry? Who in the church is called to ministry? Everyone. Everyone. Ephesians chapter 4. And God gave the apostles, the, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So all of Jesus' followers, all of the saints of God, do the work of ministry. And so gospel-shaped ministry, as we consider that this morning, is not just something that vocational pastors or staff members or elders or deacons or other officers or leaders in the church do. It's what all of us do as Christians. And some of us in the room this morning, we really appreciate this. We really own the privilege and the responsibility that that is. Others of us resist it. We prefer to leave it to the quote-unquote professionals to do the work of ministry. And yet others here this morning perhaps are exploring this whole idea of what Christianity is and what Christians believe. It's great for you to be here this morning and hear hear that, uh, that Christians believe that the ministry is to be shared among all people and not just a few professionals. Wherever you find yourself in this, whether that's bringing clarity and depth to the ministry that you already pursue in your life, or whether the word of God will call you to step into work that you've actually been given to do. Let the word of God now call all of us to faithfulness in gospel-shaped ministry. And I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. And so amid all the changing words of our generation, speak to us now your eternal word that does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Paul uses six metaphors uh, in this chapter. It's a six-fold portrait of gospel-shaped ministry. And so we'll just briefly attempt to touch on each of those this morning before bringing it all back together at the end. The six metaphors are these. The suffering, single-minded soldier, the obedient athlete, the hard-working farmer, the faithful, approved worker, the holy vessel, and the gentle servant. So first, the suffering, single-minded soldier. Verses three and four, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In chapter one last week, we saw that the choice that we have as Christians is that we will either suffer or we'll be ashamed. We will either share in some measure of Jesus's own reproach, his own suffering, or we will distance ourselves and become ashamed of him and his followers. And here Paul picks up that same idea with the image of a Roman soldier. Soldiers know they are signing up for suffering. At a minimum, they will suffer the loss of the comforts of home or of a sense of safety and a sense of security. They'll perhaps, all the way to the other extreme, suffer the loss of their very lives. 
And in order to handle that kind of suffering, soldiers must become single-mindedly devoted, single-mindedly focused on the task at hand. They must listen only to the orders of their commanding officer and not become distracted by the thousands of things that might otherwise, they, they might otherwise be doing if they were civilians and not soldiers. As Christians, we are called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says here. So our single-minded devotion belongs to him. And our marching orders as soldiers could be summed up with both the great commandment and the great commission. So the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the great commission, as you go, make disciples of all nations of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. So let's normalize two things this morning. The first is this, the work of ministry, following the great commandment, following the great commission, it's difficult It's difficult. It involves suffering. And so you and I should not be surprised when we suffer. We should actually be surprised when we don't. It's normal to suffer. It's the common shared experience of all who follow Jesus Christ. And because of that, second, it's normal then to feel the pull to do something else instead. You and I will regularly feel the appeal of something easier than loving God, loving neighbor, and sharing the gospel. The appeal of keeping ourselves busy or occupied with activities and tasks that in and of themselves are completely fine and good, but they become collectively entanglements and distractions that hinder us from this single-minded devotion. We confessed it together this morning in our prayer of confession. Our lives are cluttered, distracted from our service. So let us ask ourselves this morning, what otherwise good thing in your life is actually a diversion, a distraction, an entanglement? It might be a hobby, and hobbies are completely good. It just depends how much time and energy and money and all that stuff we put into them. It could be the amount of kids' activities that you have your children involved in. It could be a form of entertainment. It could be a a side hustle, because it's increasingly common for us not only to have one main vocation that we pour ourselves into, but something else on the side. For some, it might even be church activity. Distraction is deceitful like that. So vocationally, I'm really involved in church activity. And that's not necessarily the same thing as loving God, loving neighbor, and sharing the gospel. I hope it is. It's not necessarily the same thing. And so some of us will need to add in rhythms of service and mission, studying our Bible and praying, things like that. Others of us simply need to slow down so we can hear clearly enough to take our orders from Jesus. Second, the obedient athlete. The obedient athlete. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So where the soldier portrait is a Roman one, the athlete portrait is a Greek one. Uh, The Greeks were famous for their athletic competitions, including the Olympics. And in order to win the crown, the victor's wreath, you had to actually follow the rules of competition. Every so often, uh, we'll read a story in the news about someone who cheats in a marathon. Someone who runs for a few miles uh, and then hops in a cab for a while and then crosses the finish line like they actually ran the whole thing. 
In the 1980 Boston Marathon, uh, the woman who won promptly had her title stripped a week later when it was discovered that she snuck onto the course about a half a mile before the finish line. That's how she won the 1980 Boston Marathon. Uh, and that, incidentally, is also the only kind of marathon that you will ever see me run, the last half mile of one. I can do that. I can do that one. As Christians, we, we want to finish the race. In fact, so much of this letter is about endurance and perseverance. Paul will proclaim in chapter 4, I have finished the race. But learn from Paul's own example. Learn from his words here. Finishing is not the only thing that matters. How we run matters. The ends of finishing do not justify the means. And the means, our lives, the lives that we live on the way to our eternal home, they matter. So the laws of God and obedience to the laws of God, though not the basis of our standing, though not the basis of our salvation, they remain for us the guide, the guide to our conduct in in life. And Jesus Christ is not only the Savior of we who are otherwise unable, he is also the Lord of our lives because we need ongoing guidance, ongoing direction. So inclined as we are to do this, we must not look for loopholes or the paths of least resistance in the Christian life. What might that look like? Well, for those of us who rejoice in the grace of God, that his favor to us, his salvation is unmerited, we can begin quickly to turn around and presume upon that grace. And sometimes that happens in sins of commission. Like, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but God's gracious, so I'll ask forgiveness later. Other times, it's less subtle, it's equally presumptive. We do that with sins of omission. I know I'm supposed to actually do this good thing, but it's hard, I'd rather not, and God's gracious, so I'll just ask for forgiveness later. We also do this by treating our Christian lives as if we are tourists rather than athletes in training. Eugene Peterson says it this way, There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. He goes on to say this, Religion in our time has been captured by a tourist mindset. We go to see a new personality, or to hear a new truth, or to get a new experience, and so somehow to expand our otherwise humdrum life. There are no shortcuts to growth and godliness. There's only, as Peterson's book title itself puts it, a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And so to live our lives like tourists, to keep moving from book to book, church to church, experience to experience, that prolongs and it compromises the only real pathway that there is. It's the equivalent of hopping in a cab while everyone else is running the marathon. Are we willing to run the whole thing according to the rules? Or are we merely trying to sneak onto the course for the last half mile? Third, the hardworking farmer. The hardworking farmer. Verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops, just as you heard Pastor John teaching our kiddos this morning. In the first century Mediterranean world, something like 85 to 90% of the population was directly involved in growing or getting food as their primary occupation. Uh, so this portrait of a farmer would really resonate with the original audience in a way that maybe it does or does not for us today. It's not as glamorous as the first two, 
The soldier gets the glory of victory in battle. The athlete gets the glory of victory in competition. A farmer gets a share of the food. Dignified and good, not flashy. Not flashy. One of the dynamics of farming in that day that continues in ours is that the owners of the farm are not always the primary laborers on it. And so Paul is saying here, be like the actual laborers, those farmers. Be like the laborers who work hard, even if they're not the owners. They are entitled to the first share of the crops because they are the ones who have put in the work. So our God is a God that uses means. And those means include and especially include our labors, our our blood and our sweat and our tears. As Dallas Willard so aptly put it, God's grace is not opposed to effort. God's grace is opposed to earning. It's an important difference. And so just as you and I are inclined to be surprised when we suffer in this life, we're also inclined to be surprised when the work of ministry, get this, feels like work. (laughs) Feels like work. In chapter 4, Paul's going to go on to say, do the work of an evangelist. Why does he say that? Because evangelism, sharing the gospel with people, is work. It's a labor. It too has been affected by the fracture of sin. The ground of seeking to invite people to believe in Jesus is filled with thorns and thistles and by the sweat of our brow, by the sweat of our face, we will toil in that labor. There's a way for you and I to try and force things in the Christian life where we set our own timeline and our own plan rather than actually leading the Holy, following the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's one kind of error. But there's also this misconception that the Christian life should always just be a, a downstream float, natural and easy. And so it's common for us as Christians. I've used this language, maybe many of you have as well, to talk about having a sense of peace in making decisions. Well, I, don't, I have a sense of peace about that. I don't have a sense of peace about that. I get that. I get that. Also, there are times we should feel a, a form of agitation or angst. Jesus was so anxious that he sweat blood. Can you imagine one of the disciples going up to him in the garden while he's sweating blood and saying, well, you don't have a sense of peace about this, so you probably shouldn't continue. Probably do something else. Christians also talk about open doors and closed doors when we talk about making decisions. There's open doors, there's closed doors. And I get that too, but sometimes walking through an open door is a terrible decision. And sometimes there's a door that's closed that you and I are meant to kick down and go through anyway. Expect Toil, expect difficulty, it is part of the work of ministry. And one aspect of this hard work, as Paul then continues in verse 7, is to apply ourselves to study the truths of God. Think over what I say, he says to Timothy, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. To understand the truth of God is both a human labor and a divine labor. So ultimately, it's God. He's the one who must open our eyes and give us understanding. That's his work. But from a human standpoint, We don't just flip open our Bibles and expect God to impart all kinds of wisdom and understanding from that. That's how we invent new heresies. That's how we become false teachers, often, actually. So almost always, God brings understanding through the human means of our own Bible study, of our own internalization, our own memorization of the Word of God. And then he brings understanding and insights for our own good and for the good of other people. He helps us understand with our minds so that we might actually love him and love other people with our hearts. Fourth, the faithful approved worker. As workers, 
Christians minister by skilled faithfulness and by seeking the approval of God. So there's some overlap here with the hard work of a farmer that we just considered. There's some overlap here with the single-minded devotion of a soldier that we considered a little while ago. But the specific focus of this worker portrait is skill and faithfulness in handling the truth. So in chapter 1, the temptation that we will feel to be ashamed had more to do with being ashamed of Jesus or his followers. Here, the temptation is to be ashamed of our own shabby work. As my neighbor so kindly reminded me about a week ago, uh, my masonry skills leave a lot to be desired. And so a couple years ago, I was building a, a little retaining wall to hold dirt and stones around a tree in my front yard, and I did not anchor it properly. And so when kids of our neighborhood climbed up on it and walked across it, as kids like to do, it, it fell over. It fell over. That's not work that I'm proud of. Uh, I did not put that on like social media, you know, and say like, well, head, watch out, Chip and JoJo, because here I come. I was not pleased. I was ashamed of that work. It was bad work. And Paul says here, don't do the same thing with the word of truth. Be faithful, be skilled, handle it rightly, is what he says. And the literal translation of the original language there, it means to cut a straight line. Cut a straight line with the word of truth. He's setting up this contradiction between faithful teaching and false teaching. So faithful teaching cuts straight. Like the first explorer through a dense jungle, it carves a clear path through. False teaching, like that of Hymenaeus and Philetus, it swerves. That's what he says. It swerves. It throws people off the right path. It upsets their faith. Looking back up then at verse 2, and remembering that as Paul here is approaching the end of his life, he is committed to faithfully pass on the gospel of Jesus Christ. As it's been entrusted to him, as he's then entrusted it to Timothy, he now charges Timothy to entrust it to other faithful men who will keep entrusting it to others on and on down the line until it reaches us today, thousands of years later. Ministry, the work of ministry that we're considering in this, this text this morning, it's personal, right? We, we can't and we shouldn't separate ourselves completely from ministry. But at the end of the day, the preservation and the transmission of the truth is so much more important than trying to win people to ourselves. You hear the difference in that? We are part of this. We are, we are the, the human means that God uses to draw people to himself, and so it matters how we conduct ourselves, but it matters more that we preserve and transmit the truth. If we care too much about the approval of people, if we're willing to modify the gospel in order to make it more palatable, that does so much damage because it erodes the actual substance that we are passing on to the generations coming after us. And this happens slowly, but it happens definitively. And it's been pointed out by missiologists, there's typically a three-generation process that it follows. The first generation believes the gospel. The generation behind them starts to assume the gospel. They don't actually talk about it explicitly, understand it explicitly. They just assume it because it's kind of been part of what's passed on to them. And then the third generation, based on the assumption of their predecessors, rejects the gospel can seem slow and gradual, but as Paul says down in verse 16, there's a progression into more and more ungodliness. It will be called progress. It always has been called progress. The question is, in what direction? In what direction are we progressing? 
And it's equally essential in our day that we care more about faithfulness and the approval of God than the esteem of society. If our intent is to preserve the gospel, this is obvious when we say it this way, it's not so obvious in practice. If our intent is to preserve the gospel, denying major Christian doctrines is not the way to do it. In Ephesus in the first century, that that meant not teaching that the resurrection had already happened. That's the false teaching playing out there in Ephesus. In our day, it might be something like you can enter the kingdom of God without repentance and faith, a, a universalism or an inclusivism of sorts. It might be things like that gender and marriage and sexuality, that those things are defined by our culture rather than designed by God. Whatever it is, we do not ensure the preservation of the gospel by changing it. In the midst of this, however, Paul says, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Why? Even in the face of swerving and shipwrecked faith, verse 19, God's firm foundation stands. He knows those who are his and he will keep them. And in turn, he will call them to depart from their iniquity. Which leads us to the fifth portrait, which is the holy vessel. The holy vessel. As Christians, the vast majority of us have a really deep desire to be useful to God. Yes? We desire to be useful to God, to use our lives for things that matter. To be sent out, to be mobilized by Jesus himself to advance his kingdom. What we sometimes miss is this deep and unbreakable connection between usefulness and holiness. God, of course, uses everything according to his plans and purposes. He used the evil of Pharaoh to free Israel. He used the evil of his brothers to send Joseph to Egypt that he might ultimately deliver his brothers as well as the rest of their family. But the ordinary means and method of God is that we become useful, we become fruitful, as we put sin to death, as we increasingly become the honorable, holy people that he has called us, that he, through the work of Christ, has ransomed us out of sin to be. 150 years ago, the the Methodist movement in the United States did this really well. It's perhaps the reason, even in our own region here, that so many people came to Christ through the efforts of the Methodist movement. They called all followers of Jesus Christ not just clergy, not just leaders. They called all followers of Christ to a high bar, to a fervent spirituality, to discipleship in community with one another, to holiness in character and holiness in conduct. In verse 22, Paul repeats a very similar idea from what we read at the end of 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, that Christians are meant to be people who run, who run away and who run toward So he says here, flee youthful passions, run away from that, pursue, run toward righteousness and faith and love and peace. And lest we become individualistic in that, do this along with all of those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. So holiness is personal, it's a personal thing, but it's pursued in community. It's why we care about community in the life of the church. We need other people to help us see blind spots in our lives. We need other people to reflect back to us those aspects of sin in our lives that we've become dull or desensitized to. If you only get one thing out of this portrait of a vessel this morning, get this. Holiness is not just for the super spiritual, as if there was even such a thing. Holiness is for you. Holiness is for me. And so if and when you feel fruitless in the Christian life, 
Or if and when you feel like there's so much more usefulness that you have that is not being put to use right now. There could be a number of reasons for that. So the prophet Jeremiah labored faithfully his entire life, only ever saw two people respond faithfully to his life and ministry. It isn't always about holiness, but when you find yourself in these moments feeling fruitless, useless, it's always worth consideration and examination. Is my own sin the hindrance? Is my own sin the hindrance? In this, is this absence of usefulness or, faith or fruitfulness? Is that God's way of exposing something that I need to cleanse myself from, as Paul puts it here, in order to be ready for every good work? And let us not downplay this connection between holiness and usefulness. Sixth and finally, the gentle servant. As servants, Christians are to minister with a posture of gentleness and patience. Verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Throughout these letters to Timothy, there's a mention frequently of speculations or irreverent babble or quarrels. One of the characteristics that false teachers use is that they play with words. They play with words and they argue about minor, minor things and make a big deal out of them. And for pastors, really for anyone who feels responsibility to love and care for each other in the church, there are few things more frustrating than that. Every day, every day, if that's you, we are not only burdened by our own personal brokenness and sin and weaknesses, but we're immersed in the crises of other people. Broken marriages, families in turmoil, failing health, drug and alcohol and sexual and other kinds of addiction, people rejecting Jesus. And then you get an email from someone wanting to fight you about some inconsequential thing. Few things are more frustrating than that. I remember five years or so ago, after a worship service, and maybe this has been the experience, your experience here, maybe not, worship services tend to stir some things up in us. Sermons tend to stir some things up in us. And so pastors and friends, we, we tend to talk with each other after service. It's a great moment where the Spirit of God has done work, and we get a chance to reflect that to each other and encourage one another. And so I was talking with several people about important things going on in their life, praying with people. In the midst of that, First time, only time, visitor that came and wanted to know in that moment our church's view of the Sabbath. Specifically, do we adhere to the continental view of the Sabbath or do we adhere to the Puritan view of the Sabbath? Nothing about that service or sermon this morning was about that topic. And so I simultaneously had two very deep and visceral reactions. Uh, one, I need to go look that up because I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and number two, I kind of want to slap you because I have no capacity or desire to engage in that with you right now. People are hurting. Their lives are open right now. I have no desire or capacity to go there with you. Though we will be tempted to, don't respond with quarrels, with anger, with impatience. Instead, Paul says, be gentle, be patient. Why? Why? Because ministry is service. It is taking the low position. It's not using other people to gain some sense of self-importance or significance. It's using your life, your time, your gifts to bless other people, to glorify God. And as it's been said, we only know how much of a servant we really are when someone treats us like one. 
We only know how much of a servant we really are when someone treats us like one. It, though, however, is worth it to do just that. Because through our service, through our suffering, through our ministry, God is bringing people into his kingdom. God saves people through this. How incredible is that? Paul endures, he says, everything for the sake of the elect. He will put up with anything that this world, that his own flesh, that Satan will throw at him because it is through that ministry, through that service, that people will experience the salvation of God. And when we marry the message of the gospel with consistent means, with our lives of integrity, God, through that, grants salvation to other people. That's the aim. That's the aim of gospel-shaped ministry. The people of God, through gospel-shaped ministry, the people of God are encouraged and they endure. And many more repent and believe and come to a knowledge of the truth and they are added to our number. And to have any integrity at all, Paul has to treat opponents this way. He has to treat opponents this way because for a great deal of his life, Paul himself was an opponent of God. And so were we. And so were you and so was I. Enemies of God, as Romans 5 puts it. Intoxicated and captured by the snares of the devil to do his will, just as the false teachers here at Ephesus are. But, but, while we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, God in Christ dealt gently and patiently with us. Jesus Christ, the epitome of all of these portraits of gospel-shaped ministry, he offered up his life on the cross, he rose again from the dead in order to reconcile us to God. This lives at the core of the work of ministry. Before you and I are ever called to be servants for his sake, Jesus became the servant for ours. So single-minded was Jesus, so obedient, hardworking, faithful, and holy, that he boldly pushed back the darkness and he set the captives free. But so gentle and patient and lowly in spirit was he, that a bruised reed he did not break, a smoldering wick he did not extinguish. And Paul was so captivated by this that he never got over it. He never stopped being amazed by the mercy and the grace of God that was accomplished through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely why he calls Christians, just as he has called himself, to the same Jesus-shaped, gospel-shaped ministry. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. And verse 14, remind them of these things. Remember and remind. Being recipients of this same mercy and grace, may you and I become single-minded soldiers, obedient athletes, hardworking farmers, faithful workers, holy vessels, gentle servants. And in all of those pursuits, remember and believe this trustworthy saying that lives right in the middle of this text. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. In Christ, you are already dead to sin and alive to God. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Endure because Jesus has already made you a kingdom of priests who will reign with him forever. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Don't turn away from him ashamed. Always choose suffering, bearing some of the reproach of Jesus himself. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself, cannot deny himself. Always hang your life not on your own faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of Jesus. When you fall short 
and in moments when your life looks nothing like this portrait of ministry here, rejoice that God cannot deny himself, that he will do what he said he will do. He will bring to completion that which he has begun, and he will do that in you, and he will do that in this world. So may you be strengthened by the faithfulness of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And verse one, may you be strengthened by the grace that is found in him. Amen. Amen. We pray for us. We praise you, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. And we ask now by your Holy Spirit that what we do and how we live and the way that we love might increasingly become a worthy response. Amen.